get it. Monday, November 9th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Wherever you are, happy Veterans Day. And I hope you looked up the blog on blogs.va.gov where my colleague Adam Stump laid out all the discounts and deals that are available to you. And there's also a blog on there that has all the virtual events going on in the month of November. But you know what comes before Veterans Day. You all know it. birthday i'm sorry i love all you soldiers sailors airmen coasties i wish you well for november 11th but you have a marine as your host and it will always be the marine corps birthday episode it just is can't help it real quick couple of ratings one review this week looks like okay Oki MOS Veteran 74, who has written in before, uh, revised his review. And for some reason, they only let you do one review on Apple Podcasts. If you leave another one, it just amends the old one. Anyway, it says five stars Halloween episode. The Halloween episode was the best one yet. Appreciate that, Oki MOS Veteran. And I'm going to take your word for it and I'm going to listen to you because. Um, let's just say the comments were mixed on social media when the promo came out on the episode on Facebook. Uh, some Facebook commenters thought that the episode, I don't know, was a waste of tax dollars or something. Uh, now, if you listen to the episode, you know that we brought back Navy veteran Jennifer Marshall, who is an actress, but she is also a credentialed private investigator. And she puts those skills to use and investigates the paranormal on the CW show she hosts, Mysteries Decoded. And I thought it would be fun to talk about Bigfoot and aliens with her, uh, especially with the Navy's recent confirmed UAP slash UFO footage and with it being Halloween and all. Uh, You know that if you listen to an episode, which you are right now, you also get the veggies with your dessert. What do I mean by that? I mean, right in the beginning monologue, I'm going to tell you what information has recently been released from the VA. You're going to get your information and you're going to get some entertainment. So at the end of the day, I'm going to weigh the feedback that I get in the reviews much more heavily than those in the social media comments, because I can at least tell that you've listened to the podcast. So again, thank you for the review, Oki, MOS veteran. As always, reviews are appreciated. If you subscribe, leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps push this podcast up in the algorithms, giving more veterans a chance to catch the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the benefits breakdown episodes and in the news releases. So thank you for helping with that. Talking news releases, we got three this week. First one says for immediate release, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced their partnership with Veterans Matter has helped more than 4,000 veterans exit homelessness and move into permanent housing since 2012. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and VA's supportive housing program known as HUD-VASH works with Veterans Matter to help veterans experiencing homelessness and who qualify for rental subsidies to cover the cost of security deposits. 
Veterans Matter is a program of the nonprofit organization OneMatters.org. That's one, the number. Established in 2012, the program removes financial obstacles to securing stable housing for veterans experiencing homelessness in 25 states and in the District of Columbia. The HUD-FASH program is a collaboration between HUD and VA that combines HUD housing vouchers with VA supportive services such as employment assistance, health care, mental health treatment, and substance use counseling. The program enrolls more veterans who have experienced long-term or repeated homelessness than any other federal program. You can go to www.va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash stakeholders dot ASP to help prevent and end veteran homelessness. To overall learn more about VA homeless programs, go to www.va.gov forward slash homeless. Okay, the next one says for immediate release, Walmart reopens five VA telehealth access points after COVID-19 shutdown. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently that five accessing telehealth through local area stations, otherwise known as Atlas sites, in select Walmart stores have resumed clinical services to veterans in rural areas. VA suspended the operation of clinical services at all Atlas sites on April 10th to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and implement additional safety and infection control measures. Measures. Man. The reopened Atlas sites give veterans more options, allowing them to receive care without leaving their communities while offering the full privacy of a doctor's office. Atlas sites offer services that do not require hands-on exams, such as primary care, nutrition, mental health counseling, and social work. Establishing these points of care closer to veterans' homes, Atlas reduces obstacles and increases access to care. The following Walmart sites have reopened with CDC and EPA COVID guidelines for sanitation. Keokuk, Iowa, and I hope I said that right. Howell, Michigan, Asheboro, North Carolina. I do know that place. That place is rural. Boone, North Carolina, again, very rural. And Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. The secretary plans to expand this initiative to more sites nationwide by 2023. The Secretary's Center for Strategic Partnerships has facilitated collaborations with Phillips North America, the American Legion, VFW, and Walmart to provide convenient locations with private appointment space for veterans to receive care. Veterans meet with their VA providers at Atlas sites through VA's Video Connect. To learn more about Atlas, you can visit www.connectedcare.va.gov forward slash partners forward slash Atlas. Okay, and the last one says, for immediate release, in recognition of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it has launched a new strategic partnership with Duke University and Baylor College of Medicine towards building VA's National Women Veterans Oncology System of Excellence, integrating the best of the public and private sectors to serve patients. This partnership will recruit the nation's top breast cancer oncologists, to advance and improve health outcomes for women veterans, as well as launch new collaborative research programs. The National Women Veterans Oncology System of Excellence will also partner with the National Cancer Institute, other federal agencies, academic organizations, and pharmaceutical and healthcare technology companies to provide tele-oncology, decentralized clinical trials, and personalized cancer care to women veterans nationwide. For more information on how VA is partnering to drive innovation in cancer care or to partner with VA, you can send an email to cancer at va.gov. 
All right, so we have a really great guest for the Marine Corps birthday this week. He is a Marine Corps Force Recon veteran who was assigned to Joint Special Operation Command missions. He is a former police officer, a jiu-jitsu second-degree black belt. He was at one point the number six world-ranked flyweight. He fought in Strike Force, Bellator, and was the Legacy FC flyweight champion. And for all of his professional success, I think he would agree that the number one biggest success is that of a PTSD survivor who has found a way to be a loving father and husband. He also founded the Mighty Oaks Foundation, and their Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs host men, women, and marriage advance programs at multiple locations nationwide. The warriors who attend are fully sponsored for training, meals, and lodging needs to ensure that upon arrival to the ranch, each warrior is focused solely on his or her recovery and identifying purpose moving forward. He is Marine Corps veteran Chad Robichaud. Enjoy. Happy birthday, man. And thank you for taking the interview on, on such a quick notice. Absolutely. Thanks, Rhett. Thanks for including me in it. In fact, for you know this the Marine Corps birthday, I'm going to be uh, going to be traveling out to uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, which is for those who don't know is, is Marine Corps boot camp, and uh, I'm going to be speaking for their uh, their birthday ball, which our birthday ball, and uh, I, I get to speak at an MCRD all the time to the recruits there. And uh, so after the birthday ball, the following morning, I speak to all the recruits there. And, uh, and this time it's kind of special for me, for me, cause my son's at recruit training. So he'll after he'll hear me speak and, uh, say it's the first time in 20 years. He's actually going to have to listen to me. Talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where, what, uh, do you know what platoon he is? What, what, uh, what company he's in, uh, his platoon is 1041. He's uh first, first battalion, Charlie company, okay. and, uh, which is, uh, kind of a first for our family. Cause my father was a Marine and, um, he was third battalion San Diego. I was a third battalion in San Diego and my oldest son, Hunter was third battalion in San Diego. So all of us were kind of had a family tradition going. And then Hayden, my youngest son, he missed it by, uh, by about a, I think a week. He missed being third battalion and, uh, and got picked up at first. I, I was also third battalion in San Diego, India. Right on. Very good. Well, that's, that's really cool. So let's start the podcast. I want to start the interview. Like I start every interview here on born the battle is going back to the first time that you joined the Marine Corps. The first time you thought about joining the military, what for you, when and where was that time? I think it was a uh, way before I joined because I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional home. Like I said, my, my father was a Marine and he served as an infantryman in Vietnam and he came home and he really suffered with a lot of the same things many of the warriors suffer with today. Yeah. Never got the help he needed. So, you know, alcoholism, womanizing. Uh, he was a very violent man. So, uh, a lot of physical abuse in my home, mainly with, towards me and my brother, um, who was a year older than me. And I think we were, we were about 13 and 14 years old when we decided we wanted to join the military as really a way to get away, like escape that lifestyle. We were you know, anybody grows up in a dysfunctional home like that, especially with physical abuse, you know, the siblings yeah. bond really closely. Yeah. And so we were really bonded through that. And we decided we could join the military. We were in a, we were, grew up in Southern Louisiana. So we were always in the water, playing in the woods. And we remember we watched this Navy SEAL video. We seen this guy coming out of the, the water with scuba gear on and, and seaweed on his head. And I'm like, I want to do that. <laughs> but I don't want to be in the Navy. <laughs> so, uh, there was always, you know, when you, when you, when your dad's in the military, you, you're more familiar with that branch, but I don't think it was that, that, 
that I was more familiar with the Marine Corps. I think it was that my dad was just such a dysfunctional person. But the one thing that it always made him proud that he always kind of lit him up was the fact that he was a United States Marine. He just like was always proud of that. And I was like, it has for this guy to have that kind of reaction to being a Marine, it has to be something good about the Marine Corps. And uh, so it just lured me to the Marine, my brother, Marines, my brother and I, uh, we learned about what, you know, we know we were kind of dead set on special operations thing. So yeah. what does the Marine Corps have? And we learned about being a recon Marine. And so we started training at like 13 and 14 years old. We started running and swimming and rappelling out of trees and, and like, we're going to do this. And then about a year into that, you know, really hardship hit our family. And uh, my brother was, was actually, he was shot and killed. Oh my gosh. And, uh, and it was just devastating. So, um, well, I went to real deep isolation. My, uh, we didn't have the same biological mom. His mom really just fell off the rails. She just could not handle losing a son. Sure. My father didn't want to deal with it. And he, he bailed and went, took a job at overseas in Africa. And so it really left me and my older sister to really deal with life. And, and, uh, by 15 years old, I was living alone. And, and it was, uh, when I was 17, I was trying to work, I was roofing and going to high school and it just wasn't working out. And I went to a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown. And I, I won't forget his name because I'm, uh, I'm just so thankful for him. And I just really sure. pled my case to him and told him my story and told him my situation I was in. And I probably wasn't going to graduate high school. And he, uh, he helped me get in the Marine Corps at 17, 1993 without a high school diploma. And uh, I made a promise to him that I'd get my GED. And uh, in uh, my first year in the Marine Corps at 29 Palms, Copper Mountain College, there, uh, I, I don't, if any Marines listen, they probably know Copper Mountain College. I got my GED there and kept my word and, and, uh, you know, all these years I have MBA. So I always say when I'm speaking, I can't spell MBA, but I got one. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing I, I, it is, I just look back at that time and uh, joining the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps really give me that second chance, not, not just a second chance of life, but a clean slate yeah. to kind of build my own story off of, not, not what my dad had done and my dad's story and my childhood. I had an opportunity to build my own story. And uh, in my own journey, and and uh, and I don't know how, but at a young age of seventeen years old, I recognized that opportunity. And I took full advantage of it, and the Marine Corps gave me that chance to do that. It's it's amazing how many of us have similar stories, but we don't really know about it when we're all coming together. Sure, yeah, we're too. We don't have the kind of depth of wisdom to put the pieces together in those in those times. But you look back, and yeah, it's it's just really. I mean, my, the different trajectories our lives could take. And one small decision, I uh, just, I just where I'm at in my life right now, I'm just very, very grateful looking back. Yeah, looking back at that at your childhood, I, I think you're absolutely right in the fact that your trajectory can go anywhere after those yellow footprints. Now, you had some broken time, right? Uh, and you were a police officer in between. Yeah, I did my, I did my first four years. Um, you know, my childhood dream that my brother and I had was to be in special operations. So that first year, I tried out to be a recon marine and and made it which is uh, you know, something I'm not only very proud of for becoming a recovering, but knowing what I know now, it's super proud of to have done it at that young age. Yeah. Um, Cause it's very difficult um, to make, get into a job. And uh, that first four years was all, all schools. And, you know, 1993 uh, is when I went in. So there wasn't any wartime going on. We did some kind of drug operations, JTF six operations and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was peacetime training. And uh, I really wanted to, you know, like anyone else probably want to go do your job. You want to go to deploy. And uh, th those opportunities weren't there. So I decided to, me and my wife had a plan. Uh, we had to get married um, and uh, had our first son. So we're like, let's get out 
uh, go into the reserves because I didn't want to leave the Marine Corps because I love the Marine Corps. Yeah. Go into reserves and uh, and go to college, and when I and, and get a commission, that was kind of the plan. Gotcha. And so went to Third Force Recon Company in Mobile, Alabama, and I was uh and you know, while going to college, I had to have a job because I had a wife and kid. So the easiest job to get and uh, was being a police officer. So I was a police officer in New Orleans at that time, going to college, taking care of my family, doing Marine Corps Reserve stuff. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, that was the plan. Got you. Um, when did you meet your wife? Did you meet your wife while you were in? Was it, uh, from back home? My first year in the Marine Corps, I was, uh, I was in 29 Palms. Uh, it was my first duty station and, uh, some kid in the barracks, uh, was from about, a uh, uh, you know, two hours away from 29 Palms from Paris Valley. Yeah. And he's like, I want to go home for the weekend. I don't have a car. You do, you doing anything? Give me a ride. <laughs> and, uh, I gave him, I gave him a ride to his home and, and, um, she happened to, my wife was friends with his girl, with his girlfriend and we just met. I wanted to bring that up. Cause I know you, you there, the, a huge part of your story is your wife. What's funny is we met there. Um, you know, I'm from Louisiana and my wife's like this, you know, blonde California beach girl. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, everything that a kid, young guy coming to California would be looking for. And I'm like, Oh my gosh! Like I want to, I want to get to know this girl, and she was not interested at all. She said because I was short, so oh. I am short. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, glad it worked out. Glad it worked out. Yeah. Well, well. So my buddy, my buddy and his girlfriend felt bad for me, so they set me up on a blind date with another girl, and uh, like two weeks later, and so I came back, and and I'm meeting this there the two girls, my my blind date and my friend's girlfriend, are getting ready in the back bedroom, and and while waiting for them, these girls to come out, my wife pulls up. And she's like in her sweats and, uh, you know, hair up in a pigtail. And, and I, I seen her and, and, uh, I knew this other girls were getting ready to go out with us. And I, and I invited her on my blind date with me. Oh my God. Typical Lance Corporal thing to do. And, but, uh, but she was, uh, she was kind of competitive now cause there was a, another girl in picture competition. So she said yes and came. And so, she, so, uh, I, I ended up spending the whole night with my wife and didn't even, I don't even think I acknowledged the other girl. She's like, I could beat you in sweats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'd, we were together every day since for the following year. Uh, every day that I was off the Marine Corps, we were together. You know, and a year later, we got married. Very good. Very good. Um, going back to when you were a police officer, I learned about that through through my research. You know, I always do research before I do these interviews. And I saw your I Am Second video on YouTube. Yeah. And a, about being a police officer, there's – there's a very, I mean, the, the video starts with a very powerful opening oh, that, that discussed an incident during that time. Um, do you mind discussing it here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, when I, when I got out of the police academy, I, I, was, I was too young, you know, I went in the Marine Corps when I was 17. And so I had my first four years in, I was still like 21 years old and I looked really young and, but, but I was also in a recon Marine. So I, I did really well in the academy. And, yeah. and so they asked me to go work undercover narcotics right out of the academy and so i spent the first year as my police officer working as working on undercover narcotics and uh you know which was pretty crazy in itself and and then after that was over i went over to patrol division you know i was only in patrol about maybe about two months when this happened i just finished my field uh fto uh training and i was working one night and the beat over next to me uh was a one of the guys was my training officer uh, Steve Cantelli, and uh, he was a former Marine uh, uh, in, in military police. Really solid guy, like a yeah. uh, guy that you'd like look up to and feel completely confident with anywhere you go. I mean, he was like the kind of role model police 
police officer there. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I heard it, I heard his voice come over the radio that, you know, um, he was a domestic violence call and, uh, and he, he called for backup and right when he called for backup, the, the, the radio system stopped working and, and it wasn't his back cause it was bad radio. I think we just got a new system mm. and, uh, and it just kind of shut down. And, uh, and this is a guy like, you don't ever, I'd never heard like panic in this guy's voice. And it wasn't that he was panicked. You could tell he was just really distressed when I got to the house where he was, it was like a kind of modular elevated house. Um, I seen like a crowd of like 30 people in front of it. And then it was on this like porch and he's with this lady and arguing and, uh, with this lady. And, uh, and I, I ran up there, ran through the crowd, ran up there and I get up to the top and, and, uh, he, he's like, Hey, get, get this like Like, I forget what he said exactly, but basically get this lady away from here. Her husband's in the back and he's barricading himself in with a, with a rifle. I, I stayed at the front doorway, um, kind of watched the doorway and my buddy ran to the window of the room that this man was barricaded in, uh, cause he didn't want, he wanted to make sure he didn't shoot out the window towards, towards his crowd cause domestic violence. So, so, uh, yeah, his wife and, and by the way, his, his, his children were in this crowd. And as I'm standing in that front doorway, like I was looking into a living room and then cat a corner across the living room was, so on the far side was a, a hallway. Yep. And, uh, in that hallway, it was this mirror and, uh, you know, and I could see, I had a vantage of viewpoint through the mirror and the guy came up, uh, and was, he had his back against the wall and I could see him in the mirror and what I could see was him, uh, kind of kind of in a covered, covered position and he's got a rifle, uh, and he's, he's press checking it, like looking at the chamber and making sure it's loaded. And so I just began yelling at him, you know, you know, put the gun down. Don't come, don't come out like with the gun. Um, yeah, put the gun down. Let's, let's, uh, talk about this. I, I knew who the guy was. His name was Russell. And so I'm calling him by name. And have you, have you dealt with him before in previous incidents? I didn't, but other, other officers have, it was known that there was always domestic violence, uh, stuff and uh, going on at this guy's house. And so he turns the corner and when he turned the corner, he, uh, he had the rifle, uh, he didn't have a shoulder. He had it over a shoulder. Um, and he had his hand, but over the receiver, he had his finger by the trigger rail. I could see it very super clear. Like his finger, some, his thumb was by the, would have been by the trigger. And, um, and he, uh, he's just holding it and he's pointing it. He's pointing it at me. And, uh, I, I don't know why he did that way. I think it was maybe to see how far he could push, push, but he had it that way. He's pointed right at me. And I mean, I'm, you know, if anybody knows about, you know, lethal force or, you know, the, uh, continuum of force, like at that point, you know, I, I mean, just him, the fact in pointing a load, you know, what I believe to be a loaded gun at me, which in fact later I knew it was, you know, I, I could defend myself by, by deadly force. And, uh, and if you'd asked me that day, if I would have, I would have, you know, been gung-ho and said, yeah, somebody points a gun at me, I'm going to shoot them. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm sitting in this guy's house and his wife and children are right behind me. His toy, his kids' toys are still on the floor. There's food still on the table. There's like family pictures everywhere. Um, that was not the first thing I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just started trying to talk. I'm like, I stopped talking to him like a police officer. I stopped with the, you know, drop your gun. I was like, put your gun down or I'm going to kill you. And uh, and he's like, you put your gun down. And he started walking towards me. And, and he's, uh, Russell was, was six foot three, 263 pounds. Uh, I know his weight specifically. Uh, cause reports later, but, um, yeah, he, he's a big guy. I'm, I'm, you know, that's, I'm, I'm five foot three, five foot four, maybe on a good day. 
uh, yeah. probably back then before I got my spine crushed, I was five foot four, but, uh, and, uh, you know, then I was like probably 130 pounds. I was a little, I'm a little guy and I got this yeah. giant guy coming towards me armed with the rifle. Uh, however, you know, I was, my whole life has been martial arts and, and training and, you know, I was, I was already, I think I was already fighting MMA at that time. So I, uh, I just went kind of close the distance between me and him. And I, I, I reached forward and I grabbed the bow of the rifle, pushed it away from me. And I kicked him right nuts, like a, like a push kick to, I want to, I want to kick him and then pull the rifle out of his hand. That was my, uh, that was kind of what I was trying to do. Gotcha. And I, and when I pulled the first time, nothing, this guy's so strong. And, and, uh, so the second time I kicked and pulled and I had, I had my arm kind of retracted, like to, I'm not like flailing my gun out there. And my arm kind of retracted. The second time I kicked, my arm must have kind of came away from my body or something, but he grabbed my wrist. And so now we're fighting over two guns. Uh, this guy's like, you know, a monster over me. We're fighting over these two guns. And, um, and I could tell in that moment that, you know, the situation definitely escalated and, uh, he wasn't going to give up probably ever. And, um, you know, that I, you know, I had to, you know, escalate the situation. So I, I uh, kind of broke his grip. I kind of turned my my wrist towards his body with my gun to break his grip. And as my barrel pointed at the center of his chest, I fired the first round. Boom! Like right, I, I seen it hit center mass. I seen his his t shirt. Uh, mm. uh, kind of kind of thump, you know. Uh, and then uh, and then I fired. And then I, I fired uh, six rounds total. So really point blank, six rounds. My my partner. Uh, Steve came in at the same time and he, he was right over my shoulder firing. He fired six rounds as well. We hit him 11 times out of the 12 times fired. And, uh, he dropped like when we were shooting him, I remember he dropped to his knees and he like made just very kind of calm, very calm eye contact with me. And he said, you killed me just like conversationally. You killed me and, uh, turned around, fell down and, uh, I tackled him, pulled the gun out from under him to get away from him. And, um, the wrist was bleeding a lot. I was like covered in blood. And uh, I remember later trying to wash it off me. I could feel like I couldn't get it off me. And, you know, as I'm handcuffing him, I still like I heard like two things. One, one is I heard um, all, all the police sirens coming. It, it happened at that time, like right when we shot and all the police was showing up. And the second thing I heard is probably the most distinct thing and something I'll never forget is his wife just, just blood curling, like scream, like screaming, uh, trying to get in trying to get to him. I looked at the door and she, people were holding her back and I, oh, I like wanted to go to her, but I knew I could go to her. And, uh, and then his kids, you know, look, wouldn't had no reaction. They were just like, they know they were trying to figure out what was going on. And so, you know, at that time all the policemen came and, and, uh, kind of took over, separated me and my partner, yeah. took her guns away, uh, went back to detective bureau for interviews. Uh, the next morning, you know, I, uh, Next morning, I I remember the chief police calling me and the, uh, our chief calling me and saying, uh, hey, don't read the newspaper. And of course I did. And it said, uh, front page of the paper said, cold headline said, cold, cold-blooded murder. That's what it said. And it was quoting the wife yeah. uh, in this small print underneath it, it said, please say justified. And uh, started ongoing, you know, was the district attorney didn't take any position, which forced us to go to a grand jury for second degree murder indictments, um, which is pretty scary. 
Uh, yeah. So it went before grand jury. It was cleared, cleared by the grand jury, of course, or we probably wouldn't be on this call, but cleared, cleared by the grand jury. And, uh, and then later on, we got from the state of Louisiana, we both got um, uh, the state medal of valor. And, uh, but honestly, with the way the situation was kind of. Uh, you had to have looked at that valor medal and going, I went through all that BS and now you're going to give me a medal. Yeah, that was kind of my attitude towards it, even even when we were receiving it. it was, yeah. I kind of felt like it was a joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm super, uh, super proud of my partner uh, and I's performance. I mean, I believe not only we saved our own lives that day, saved each other's lives, but uh, I mean, his ultimate goal was to, I, I, I believe, you know, his ultimate goal was to kill his wife and kids and probably himself. Um, and, you know, and, and they were in a crowd of about 30 people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, he's telling us to leave to put our put down our guns. Had we not did what we did, you know, people would have died. So I'm, pr- I'm proud of that. Uh, you know, and I think we made. I definitely think we made the right choice. But I had just completely lost interest in, in being a police officer. I was well, sure, probably not not in a good state of mind to be a police officer at the time. I had a very poor attitude towards towards uh towards the politics by being a police officer. I, I could see I could see one losing the taste for something like that. I mean. You talked about coming home mm-hmm. in, in that video and, and the feelings you felt there with your wife, uh, the expectation of support versus the reality of support of what people sometimes don't understand what it when you come home to some, from something like that. Kathy's – it's kind of funny. Uh, Kathy's uh, – she is super supportive, but she's extremely naive uh, sure. to – the real world and, uh, and, you know, good and evil and all the, and I, and, and I used to have like a real, uh, starting with that moment, I probably had like a real bitterness towards her for many years, but now mm-hmm. it's just like, I'm like, man, I'm just really blessed to have a wife like that, that could, uh, that sees the world that way. Uh, in spite of all the things that I've had to see and do. Yeah. Um, and she's, I mean, how else could she endure eight deployments to Afghanistan and, and be like, you know, just running around with the kids, be a mom, be a dad, take care of everything. Like just being not really phased by it. Uh, if she, if she, if she's seen the world the same way I do, uh, she would have been just a mess. And so sure. thankful she's that way. And, but the first glimpse I got of it was that night, you know, I came home and I'm like, she's asleep and it's in the middle of the night and I'll wake her up. And I'm like, did anybody call you? No one, no one had called her until it would happen. So I had to tell her and, uh, and she laid over and went back to sleep. And uh, I, mean, I was just like upset. I was really upset. I was like pissed. I was like, like I wanted, I wanted to be supported. Yeah. And she just, that's what she thought policemen do every night. Like go and shoot bad guys. And uh, at the time, like in my life, I was really bitter towards that. But all these years later, I kind of just am, am thankful that, you know, there's that innocence I mean, unless you go through a situation like that or, or you're, you're exposed to that kind of under uh, underbelly of society every day, I don't think you understand what, what that life is like. I, I think it's, I think it's great that, um, that you guys have survived as long as you guys have. Yeah, 25 years now. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, was that incident the reason that you kind of jump started going back into the Marine Corps before, like you said, you were going to, you were going to commission? So I was working at, I was working there and I, I and I staff, um, and, uh, and I was splitting my time. I was also working part-time at, at the department. And, um, so I was going back and forth. Gotcha. I was trying to use, you know, I was just, I didn't quit resign from the department, but I was, you know, not really being forthcoming and, and, um, and just trying to work my way over back to Marine Corps. I was waiting on a package to come through. Gotcha. And, um, 
and I was at a detective bureau. Um, I, I got promoted to detective. I was at a detective bureau, a super young age to be in the detective bureau because of that incident, that award. Yeah. Uh, I remember coming home from, I was doing a, a surveillance that night coming home and the morning of September 11th and I hadn't went to sleep yet. Um, turn on the television and, uh, and seeing those, you know, watching those planes fly under World Trade Center buildings. My wife and I sitting there watching it. And, you know, just being in, even being in reserves, just being in a, a unit like Third Force. Yeah. You know, being a special operations guy. And I'm like, man, my life's about to be a lot different. I've heard, I've heard things from, you know, I went straight to the armory and started cleaning my weapon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, all sorts of stuff around that time. Yeah. It was a very motivated military uh, at that time. It was kind of a mess because I left the department. I, I resigned right away. Went to the third force, went on active duty there. Uh, we thought we were deploying to Afghanistan immediately. And then, uh, I remember my CEO, uh, uh, called me in and said, Hey, he knew my situation. He's like, Hey, uh, you know, I know you're about to quit your, you know, you, you resigned, you quit your job. We're, it doesn't look like we're going to deploy. And I remember being like so deflated and he's, and, uh, and then he, he told me, Hey, but the, the federal air marshals had 40, like 45 air marshals at the time, but not, a lot, yeah. Yeah. not many. And, uh, and now they got stood up to bring on, you know, I don't want to say the number, but a lot, a lot. They, yeah. they, had to, they had to spin up a lot of air marshals to, to meet this, you know, mandate to shift to, you know, being able to protect our airline airliner. So, yeah. and you know, if you hire someone in a federal job, and you have to get a top secret clearance. It takes a while to hire someone. And so they made a pretty smart play. They went to all the reserve special operations units, the Green Beret units, the SEAL units, the, the force recon units, because they knew they had guys that had experience and already had top secret clearance. And so that was their play. And so they came to third force recon company and, and did a, did kind of like a job fair thing there. And, uh, and I was in the, I mean, it took like a, a month to get on. I was in the air marshal Academy in, uh, in November of, uh, of 2001. And so I went there. I, st I was still in their force and reserves. W went there uh, to the air marshals, flew for, flew as a federal air marshal for a few months. And then I became the uh, head training officer for the Denver field office. And then, uh, you know, I was, I was fine. I was a training officer and also flew in special missions. And then um, obviously it sounds really cool for people that were in the air marshal. But for me, I'm like, I want to go to Afghanistan. Like I don't yeah. want to be sitting on an airplane in first class, uh, you know, just waiting for something. Yeah. Just waiting for something. I want to, I want to, I mean, you know, obviously every now and then we got to follow a bad guy and, but you know, no one was, it just, nothing was happening. So, so I, I, uh, my, my deployment, my, my unit finally got deployment. I was doing a workup. Uh, so I started doing a workup for Iraq, uh, not Afghanistan. Yeah. And we were augmenting second force recon. And it was during that time I had opportunity to try out for a JSOC task force. And, uh, because of my police officer experience, because of my, uh, I had a business degree, I had a couple of things that were required for the specific JSOC task force. Um, and, uh, I was told I had a former buddy who was a, a really close buddy who was a former CAG, uh, Delta force guy. And yeah. he, he had the, the insight on it. He's like, yeah, I think you should try out for this. And so I went and do the assessment and selection. Uh, you know, prepare myself for all the things you have to do for, you know, for assessment and selection for that type of, yeah. you know, where you go and try out for, you know, blue or green or, you know, one of these JSOC task force. And, and I got picked up. So, and I got picked up and, 
it was for Afghanistan. And, and, uh, so as part of the JSOC task force, I did my aid deployments to Afghanistan. At that point were you, was it like, Hey, you're activated and you, you were, you were active duty from then on? Yeah, uh, I was, uh, without getting into specifics, I, I did start off as active duty, um, midway through, Okay. Uh, I, mid, midway through, I, uh, I, I ended up, um, not, it was basically my time was up and I didn't want to leave. Uh, and they wanted me there. So I just did a direct contract to my command in those, in those communities. A lot of people could do that. When you say I, like it's contractor, I wasn't like, I wasn't a security contractor. I, I had a basically to your left and right is active duty guy. Yeah. And next guy's a contractor it's in those units. They do stuff like that. Very good. Very good. Very good. Um, eight deployments, uh, as a, as a force recon Marine, you've talked openly how those deployments, uh, changed you. Yeah. Um, you might, you mind sharing those, you mind sharing that with, with those that are listening right now? Yeah. Uh, so I'll say like today, like what, what I do today, I, I do a lot of speaking on, um, on resiliency. I've spoken to over 150,000 active duty troops on, on resiliency. And, uh, you know, the, one of the things I teach on a lot is, is the four pillars of resiliency. Uh, the military, every branch talks about four pillars of resiliency, mind, body, spirit, social, be mentally tough, physically tough, have a spiritual foundation, be in a strong social network, uh, surrounded by yourself with the right people. And, um, uh, I think there's a lot to those four pillars. When you really think about it, those four pillars, if they're, if you have a balance and, and equip yourself in all four of those areas, you're going to be combat ready warfighter. And then when you experience the things you experience as a warfighter, you're going to be able to bounce back. It doesn't mean you're not going to be, it doesn't mean you're going to be, uh, you know, immune to problems. It means when you have the problems, you're going to know where to recalibrate to and how to recalibrate. So, so I think it's a lot to it, but, but the problem in the military is again, we do these left, these kind of points at a surface level, mind, body, spirit, the kind of motivational things, but nobody talks about what they actually mean and not only what they mean, but how do you implement them in your life? And so that's kind of what I do today. And the reason I do that today is because, because I, I feel like I was deficient in some of those areas and not only was it deficient, but I was kind of naive to believing that I was really ready. You don't know if you're ready for combat uh, unless you've experienced combat, but you know, but other people, the generation before you could take some of those lessons and, and prepare you. And that's, you know, that's what I tried to do today. You know, I I remember, so when I flew to Afghanistan, the first time I landed at Bagram air base in the middle of the night, it's 2003. And so I was waiting for my point of contact and, uh, and, and I was just kind of walking around our, our area and uh, I walked out to the edge of the the um, the perimeter of the base, and and the, I remember there's like Hesco barriers and some Constantino wire on top, and it's like dark. There's no lights there. The lights are kind of facing out. And, it, and I remember like having this feeling like oh, I just feel like twenty nine palms and <laughs> and uh, kind of night arid air. And uh, and and I I started thinking like wow like I'm not a young guy. I'm not I'm not I'm twenty I'm probably twenty eight twenty nine years old now. So I already had like life experience, police officer, you know, force recon, tons of squads, better even all the schools, you know, jump, die, free fall, like, a, you know, all the yeah. shooting packages. I had a lot of a training. So it wasn't like a kid going there. I'm, I'm like thinking like all this training, all this time, like this is actually real. Like I'm, I'm here in a combat zone and on the other side of these Hesco barriers is the Taliban. I see the enemy. And before I leave here, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to face these the enemy and I'm going to do what I've been trained to do and what I was sent here to do. And it's like kind of a really like very altruistic. Yeah. It's like, it's really going to happen. This isn't like training anymore. This is for real. And, uh, and I think anytime somebody like puts themselves in that position and, and thinks about it, you have to ask yourself, 
like, am I ready? Am I ready to do what I was trying to do? And, um, you know, so I sat there on the edge of that Pesco, Pesco barriers in the middle of the night. And I asked myself that question. And I don't know if it came out in these terms, but, uh, you know, I did like a self inventory, you know, mind, body, spirit, social, you know, am I mentally tough enough to do this? Am I physically tough enough to do this? Like check, check. And spiritually, do I have a strong spiritual foundation? I had to wear a Christian stamped on my dog tag. So like I had a faith, like yeah. it's very surface level of being honest with you at the time. And socially, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a tier one special operations you know, unit. Like I'm like with the best of the best, of course. Like, so I felt like I had all those areas checked. Uh, and I, and I think I, I made this decision because my wife was really like a strong person of faith. And she'd be like calling me like, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, what are you praying for? Like, God's not here. Like this place is like evil. You could feel it in the air. Like there are for those who listening, who's been to Afghanistan before, like this is like a presence of like, like this just kind of just like dark, like just presence of evil in that place. And, uh, and I would tell my wife, like, there's no God here. Like, and so I had this like real cynical attitude. And I believe that early on, I made this decision that to think like, I have to do this hard job. I have to be this warrior and make these hard decisions and these decisions that have like these kind of moral conflicts and they'll have to choose between being a person of faith or being a warrior. And I believe that I've made an intentional decision to say, I could do that when I get older, there's no place here. Like, and so I believe I intentionally put faith out of my life at a time. And, and uh, honestly, looking back, I think it left a giant hole inside of me sure. that over the years I feel with like hate, and rage, and anger, and bitterness. Like, um, you know, my, my experience is, you know, different than a lot of people. I, I didn't live on the base. I lived out because of the nature of my job. I was an AFO advanced force operator. Do it. So I do all the clandestine logistics and stuff like that for my, my operation, my, my unit kind of pre pre assault yeah. uh, work. All the, uh, we go, go ahead, you know, usually with myself and local nationals or like one or two other team members and, you know, run around in the mountains and just build our, build the targets and, and, uh, and set up all the infrastructure to put, put squadron guys on targets. That's what I did. Gotcha. And so like living like that, living in, in, in the Afghan community and eating dinner with their families and playing soccer with their kids and really understanding like why we were there, not just to retaliate for 9-11, but like to, to eradicate the Taliban and, uh, and help these oppressed people. I mean, a lot of people don't have the same experience with Afghans and me. Like some of the Afghans there were like patriots. They loved their country. They wanted it back from the Taliban. The reason they hated the Taliban was the ideology, like the ideology and the oppression that these people were under. The taunt, I mean, what they did to the way they treated women, uh, yeah, it was just grotesque. I don't, I don't mean like, I don't mean like male chauvinist stuff. I mean like the physical abuse and stuff like that. And, and then the children, the sexual abuse, sexual molestation of little boys and little girls, like all that stuff, like just so disgusted me. And then not only was I hearing it, but I was starting to see it. And so I began to really hate, like have this hatred towards the Taliban. And and uh, and the people that probably hated the Taliban the worst was the Afghans, uh, obviously, they worked with that had to endure that. And so I, I like my unit and uh, kind of mentality of my unit was like this kind of like Viking war culture mentality. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, it, and, you know, just very driven, very passionate. Uh, any operation we were on, it was like, we're going to win. I mean, zero, zero fail mentality. Uh, we're going to win. And, we, and honestly, that mentality works really well in combat. We crushed uh, our, our unit, crushed every operation yeah. that we had. But you talked about, but you, but you talk about almost from, from that first time that you got there to your eighth deployment, almost from, an, you, you started out altruistic, but then be, almost became what you hated. Yeah. I mean, um, just over time, you, uh, I mean, I think you, you, you go to do something like that with a sense of nobility and, and, uh, 
like, I mean, any warrior should that's serving their country should have like a compassion for people, a heart for people, uh, a heart of service. And, you know, but you can't have that. If it, it seems like sometimes you can't have that compassionate heart, uh, while you're in the moment of doing that, because that compassion would compromise your ability to do your job. You just wouldn't be able to function. So, you know, I believe, you know, I believe in God and I believe God created a certain way. And, and, uh, there's something that turns off inside of us, uh, through a limbic system that allows us to be able to do that job, be in the presence of evil and function in a way that, that in, in a way that is sustainable. And, um, and so that compassion kind of has a, you know, a switch that slipped. And when that switch is flipped, you, you just don't feel anymore. You don't, I remember like, you know, just seeing things and doing things. And I'm like, that didn't bother me. Like that should bother me, but it didn't <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? That mentality, that lack of emotion, that lack of empathy, that is very necessary uh, to function in combat. That those things that allow you to, the, that intensity allows you to be violent with the enemy, which is necessary. Yeah. Even, even all those things that are necessary, they're not normal. They're not normal and they're not natural. You got to be able to switch it. It's got to be a switch. And there lies the problem because for me, being in that environment and having those necessary, um, you know, physiological or emotional like uh, responses, you can't just flip a switch when you're home 24 hours later because that's literally how fast I'd be home. And my wife's taking me up from the airport and got my kids in the car. And now I'm supposed to just flip the switch and be like, you know, husband, father, and Mr. Rogers, and friendly neighbor. Like I'm still like this angry, intense guy. And, uh, and my home, you know, the way I behaved was not a happy or safe place for my wife and children. I was, I was like very intense. I was very, uh, you know, short, like the, you know, wife and kids were walking around on eggshells, worried they say the wrong thing. And I'd like have a temper tantrum and, act like a 15 year old child that throw things, break things, punch holes in the wall, slam doors, yell at them like a Marine Corps drill instructor. And, and, I, and I like self-justified. I'm like, well, I, this is who I am right now. Like I have to be this way because I'm going to be back over there in, in three months. So I have to be this way. So sorry, like this is what you got to deal with right now. That's, that was kind of my, my mentality. Like I, this is just who I am. And uh, I remember one time my wife and daughter was like you know, talking about my, my daughter's birthday and and i was gonna miss it because i was in afghanistan so my daughter like moved her birthday party for me to be home and she was so happy that dad was home for her birthday and, uh. and i like and my and i was at her birthday party and it was going good and i remember her she's very opinionated now she's 22 she's even more opinionated <laughs> she, she is but she she like said she didn't like the icing on her birthday cake like something like super simple, right? And I like just lost my mind, grabbed a handful of my little girl's birthday cake. I picked up her cake and threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday. Oh my gosh. How old was she? I mean, she might've been 10 years old. And I remember thinking like, like what kind of person, like what kind of dad behaves that way? You know, and, 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 and like that was one example, like many moments that I behaved that way. And in those moments, I, I'm not a dumb guy. I knew I was out of control. Like I wasn't naive. I knew I was out of control, but if I stopped like that ball from rolling, then I'd be admitting that there was a problem. Yeah. And so I wouldn't stop. And, uh, and so I started kind of recognizing how bad it was. And so instead of fixing the problem, 
I, you know, I just really justified. I have to be this way right now. So I'm just going to isolate myself from them and stay as busy as I can. So you got a school I can go to, you got a, like a deployment training I can go to another deployment. I could go to somebody need to, somebody need to, you know, somebody need to come home for 10 days. I'll go and fill in for 10 days. Like that was, I just stay as busy as I could. I think you're picking on like the reason a lot of guys talk about the need to go back. Sure. You know, there's a lot they, they, you, you watch the hurt locker and, and he's there getting milk. And for him, it's just like, you know, in the movie, it's kind of, it kind of displayed that, that feeling of, I need to get back because he couldn't turn it off. And you're, and you're very, you're, you're very open with that. I gotta, I gotta be honest. It just, it just feels easier to be honest with you. What did, what did your PTSD physically feel like when it came? Yeah. Uh, so originally, you know, all this was anger, frustration, those types of things. That was the original, okay, you know, but by delaying those things and not dealing with them, because that's what I did. I said, you know, we'll sort this out later. Like right now I have a job to do. So we'll, we'll sort this out later. So, you know, that's kind of, I look back at my story and have this pattern of delaying things like, like I'm going to solve this later. Like I don't have to deal with this right now. And by not, by not addressing it when it started with, uh, with anger and frustration, cause that's where it started for me. Um, by not addressing it, it began to manifest in these other, other symptoms that I know to be, you know, symptoms of PTSD. It started to happen, uh, manifest in the, my arms would go numb. That was kind of the first experience. I'd like feel like my hands and arms would go numb when I get, when I get like real frustrated and anxious. And then it would kind of progress to my face, my cheeks, like my go flush and numb. And then, uh, did that concern you when, when you started experiencing that? At first I was like, I'm just worked up, you know, like a uh, blood boiling worked up. Yeah. But I think when it really started concerning me was when I know it was progressed really quickly. Um, I think when it really started concerning me was, uh, my throat would feel like I was swelling shut mm. and I couldn't breathe. And I feel like I had like a thousand pound weight on my chest. Like I'm like something's wrong. Like I'm, I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. Like I'm going to stroke out or have a heart attack and I'm, you know, am I a 30 year old guy? Yeah. I'm super athletic. And so something's wrong. And, uh, and I, you know, so I start researching like, what's, what's wrong with me? Oh, these are all signs of I'm having panic. I'm starting to have like early onsets of panic attacks. And that full blown panic attacks at the time. And now I know what panic attacks really are, but these are like, you know, some, some, some of the symptoms of panic attacks. And, and so again, instead of like, just like the anger and frustration, instead of dealing with it, then let me, I could deal with this later. Like if I say something right now, all my peers are going to think I'm weak. They're going to push me out of my job. I have a TSSCI clearance. I'm going to get read out. Like I'm, if I get mental health, any kind of mental health treatment, like I'm not going to, be able to do my yeah. job anymore. So that was definitely a, a stigma back in the day. Absolutely. It was. Yeah. This is, this was, uh, you know, at the time when this started, it was probably like 2006, you know, I'd already had a couple of deployments in Maybe yeah. 2005. It started 2006 was when, when it really was getting bad. Was it a major factor uh, of why you got out in 2007? No, no, it was, it was the factor. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was the, it was the reason when I say it started to get worse, like I started having these moments to where I was like waking up, out of, like during very intense moments in Afghanistan, it was like, I'd wake up out of a dream. Yeah. Like it was like, I dreamt what, what had just happened. And, uh, and you have this thing called disassociation where you're, I didn't know what it was called. I looked research it forever till I found out what it's called a disassociation. Cause that's when you're in such intense environment, your body doesn't remember things in real time. You almost like remember things like in delay. And you see yourself in third person. So I was having some very strong uh, physiological effects to um, 
to the intensity that I was involved in. And then, uh, towards the in- latter part of my time, I had, uh, 12 guys that were, that were killed and, and 10 of them were Afghans. And, you know, maybe a lot of people listening without the same experiences I have, they might not think this is a big of a deal for these, for Afghans, on my team to be killed. But these guys were, uh, these guys were my brothers. Like, uh, you know, these guys were, these were the guys that was in their homes living in their homes and had yeah. relationships with their wives and kids. And, and, uh, I mean, these guys were patriots and they were, they were my friends and I, I was with them for like three years. So, um, these were long, very solidified relationships, kind of relationships, you, relationships you forge in combat yeah. and they would have died for me and I would have died for them. And in fact, they did die for me and I was responsible for them. So if I was hanging on by a thread in that moment, that thread was, was snapped and, um, I continued to operate at last. There was the last mission I went out on. I was with, uh, was by myself with, uh, some local nationals and, um, you know, it was two weeks long. When I came back from this two week operation, like, yeah, I, it was like, I, I just woke up and, uh, and could just recollect it. And, and I, I realized there was some things that I did that didn't only put myself in danger, but put other people in danger as well. And when I came that came to that conclusion, I said, I have to say something. And so I spoke up and I was come, I was brought home and I was put before a clinical psychologist and, uh, and I was diagnosed with PTSD. And that's when, you know, obviously everything changed for me. What was it like getting out in 2007? That was right before the great recession, right? Yeah. And, you know, like I said, for me, it wasn't a transition because at that time in 2007, I wasn't on active duty anymore. I had a contract in my command. So, uh, it was just like a sever. It wasn't like a slow process of going to wounded war battalion or I was just, I was just done. They, so, so those special opera at that time, there was no taps for you. There was no, it was just like your contracts. It that's it. Yeah. They, 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 they took care of me though. Obviously at that moment I wasn't in the best state of mind. So I was like, didn't feel like they did things the right way, but they looking back, they did. I mean, I had a major like out process with like when it comes to my clearance, like being read out polygraph interviews, like all kind of stuff like that to make sure. So that was like going, being in the situation I was in right at that time, it was, it was terrible to endure that, but it was the right thing to do. And they made sure I had like the very best psychologist that I could have, uh, to take care of me. So they, they did, they did the right thing and took care of me. And, um, and, uh, but I mean, when you're in a program like that, that's has like a, you read in, you have a clearance, like all my peers, the only friends I had in the world at that time are the guys I worked with. Yeah. And it, I was, I was cut off from them. And so that was really hard. And, and, and like people talk about panic attacks all the time. I always hear people say like, oh, I was in traffic the other day and there was so much traffic and I had a panic attack <laughs> Yeah, and not to minimize anybody's experience, but like the level of panic attacks I'm talking about when I was, it's like, if you're like lit on fire and you just burn and you never die. Like if you're like, if you're drowning in a swimming pool, like if you're handcuffed to the drain of a swimming pool and you're drowning and you can see like air, like yeah. how desperate would you be to fight for that breath of air? But you never drown. You never die. Like 24 seven, you're like in that state of panic. That's the level of panic attacks I'm talking about. So I was dealing with that. And on top of that, I was dealing with, I can't even explain the level of shame that I had. Like I didn't belong that task force that I was on. I, I never felt that I could deserve to be there. I mean, I, you know, I worked my butt off to be a Marine, to make it to recon and make it to force, you know, to force. And then, uh, you know, but when I went to JSOC task force, I was like a, I was a force recon reservist. And I was like, not only was I a reservist, but I was the youngest guy. So like all the, all my peers were like active duty dev group guys, uh, yeah. Delta force guys. Like I was like, why'd they pick me? You know? And, uh, 
and I always say that probably reason why they picked me because I'm always the one willing to work the hardest. But uh, but they picked me, and uh, and I was like, never felt like, always felt like, just super privileged to be there. Uh, so I I really dealt with a lot of shame. Like I was entrusted with this, and I let people down. Yeah, but you did eight deployments, man. Like that's yeah. that's not. Eight I know that now. I mean, yeah, but in the moment, you you, you feel the shame and, and the shame and the guilt. And I think anybody that gets out can relate to to that. You know, uh, at, at any level, I think if they got out for med board separation or if they got out for for whatever reason, they can they can you know. I should have done 20 or it's like, it's like people have to understand it. You're 1% of the, of the American population or less than 1% of the American population that even volunteered to do this stuff. Um, did you start Brazilian jiu-jitsu while you were in or what, or did you really dive into it at this point to try to, to try to. Yeah, I, it was, it was a diving into it. You know, I, I did I always say when I'm speaking, I did martial arts since I was little, but I'm still little. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I started when I was five years old. So I, I didn't start Brazilian Jiu Jitsu when I was five years old. I started, I think I originally started karate and then judo and uh, and then traditional Japanese Jiu Jitsu. So it, these are all things I started when I was very young. Gotcha. And so in 1996, I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And so um, while I was going to Afghanistan, you know, I was already. I was already a brown belt. I was a, I was already a professional fighter. I see some of your profiles. You, they go all the way back to '99. Yeah. Uh, so your MMA career obviously had to crisscross your military career. It did. Yeah, it did. It was, it was something I just. I mean, like I know a lot of people like dive in and like fighting is all they do, but to me, it was, it was something I did my whole life and competed my whole life. So it was got very natural transition for me. Like, hey, uh, my wife and my counselors were like, hey, you need to do something. You can't just sit at home and let your mind spin. You got to get on the, do something. So get on the mats and train. And, and, uh, and, uh, I didn't want to, uh, cause I felt like anything physical that got my heart rate up would like kill me. Yeah. Um, that's what it's bleeding at the time. But, but when I got on those mats for the first time and start training jujitsu again, I felt like I found the cure uh, yeah. to this PTSD thing because you know, you can't, you can't focus on like things that are giving you stress, and anxiety and do jujitsu cause your buddy's going to choke you out you got to be paying attention your body's gonna choke you out you got to be paying attention you got to be focused and so so it's like it's like something that allows you to unplug from the world and be present yeah and uh and i, I believe there's a lot to say for physical activities and people they're dealing with the problem is you can't do it 24 7 sure. i tried to do it 24 is that what you were so, doing 24 yeah, 7 yeah i mean i mean that's what people do like, like oh wow this physical activity feels really good like and so it, it takes my mind off of things and there's a lot of things that take your mind off of things drugs alcohol uh, career, physical activity, careers. Yeah. So, so that's exactly what it did. Like some people would climb in a bottle of alcohol or drugs or focus on, I just dove into that. And, uh, and you know, I put a lot of time into it and started fighting again, opened the school. I ended up putting a thousand students in my school in a period of like three years, which is like, wow. Means you make a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I had a, like professional success there. And then I started fighting again. I ended up 18 and two as a pro. I won the a world title belt uh, was ranked number six in the world as a professional uh, flyweight MMA fighter and, you know, fought on all the big, big shows and pay-per-view and showtime. And, you know, one problem at the time uh, during the height of your career is that USC didn't have a flyweight division until 2011. Yeah. Now it's, it's, it's towards the end of your career, but you were lobbying for a UFC run at the time. Many others in the media were even writing about you, you know, uh, Yahoo news. I think I saw a story. I think sure dog, I saw a story. Um, and you look at, you look at Tim Kennedy, Brian Stan, who was maybe a little younger at the time, Randy Couture, uh, you know, they all had pretty good runs in their later years. Why do you think it ultimately did not come to pass? Uh, I mean, I think things happen for a reason. Uh, so when I fought in strike force, 
you know, I had a, I was undefeated. I had a great record. I, yeah. And I was, a uh, I was 16 and 0. And, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people would have been like, if anybody, I was number one ranked flyweight in the U S and number, number six in the world. And <clears throat> I should have, you know, if any, if anybody should have had a shot, uh, to go to UFC and in, in the initial flyweight division, it should have been me. And, yeah. and, uh, I was at strike force and, um, and, uh, Sean Shelby was the matchmaker and, um, and he was talking about, he was talking about, uh, you know, style of styles of fights. And at that time, everybody was striking, doing a lot of striking and stuff like that. And getting in the middle of the ring. That's when everybody started. I mean, if you watch fights now, there's you know, a handful of guys that get in the ground to grapple. You're probably looking at a bare, you know, small glove, four ounce glove boxing match, which you're kind of looking at in the UFC now. It's funny because you were talking about, you're talking about striking back then, but now you look at the greatest fighter that's being celebrated that's retiring is Khabib grappler is a grappler yeah, grappler is a grappler yeah you know so that, was, that, was, that was me I mean Khabib's my style that's what I love and uh and uh you know Sean Shelby was a matchmaker for the UFC I mean the UFC owned Strike Force when I when I was on contract there so I had a Zufa contract gotcha and um and so I'm like I had one fight and I'm like hey I should I should have a four fight deal I should be able to go over to UFC and Sean Shelby's like well no one wants to see you know people <laughs> drag each other to the ground and people want to see you know, get out there and get after it and um and I'm like well do your job. And uh, my job's to to win fights. Your job's to put people in front of me. I can't take down. And, uh, and he did like that. It was uh, and then gotcha. Uh, I, I said that in front of people, and people were like, you know, I think it was Tim. I was like, oh, like <laughs> Tim Kennedy. It's <laughs> <laughs> really like embarrassing. He turned red, and uh, and I think he liked me after that point. Now uh, even Dana White, even Dana White's like, hey, why aren't you in the UFC? And uh, to my manager, and my manager's manager's like, yeah, that's why we're asking. And so he's like, oh, we'll send you over a contract to stand by. And, uh, and then Sean Shelby intervened. So I think Sean, uh, Sean didn't like me. And uh, and uh, so after Strike Force. I fought for the Bellator, the Bellator belt, and uh, fought Zach Bukowski in the main event of Bellator. And uh, I mean, I was the very best I had to offer. I mean, I was. Uh, there's no, you know, when you fight, you always like, oh, I could have did better, or or had this going on. But honestly, that was that was like, that was the best I had. And Zach was just better that day, and yeah. I mean, he's one of the most incredible fighters in the world. And yeah, I went up and weight fought 135, and uh, he was just, I mean, he was just he's a world Greco champion wrestler. He's just a yeah. terror uh, of a wrestler, and got out grappled, and uh, he beat me. And uh, and so no no excuse. To, I actually one of my favorite fights, and my favorite my first loss. Yeah, and uh, and I remember talking, to, actually talking to Sean Shelby after, and he's like, yeah, Zach's tough, and no no uh, no, no strikes against you there. And then uh, and then I. I had a rebound fight against a guy named Jonathan Mackles, who has a great record. I think he's fifteen and two. Yeah. And uh, but I, you know, I, I'm pretty confident I beat him ninety nine times out of a hundred. And I kind of slipped in a banana peel and lost the fight that night, and uh, and so lost two in a row. And uh, and I think that shut the door because that was the time that the uh, UFC was doing the that you and doing the uh, tournament. Four-man tournament. Yeah. Yeah. This this sucks because I should the, the, the Zach Mikoski fight. I was cool with losing that fight. This one, I, I should have won, and it really ate at me. But I'm like. That door is being closed because if I would have went to UFC at that moment, I, I might have not been able to put the energy in the Mighty Oaks like I did. Good. And uh, it required my energy. So I'm, I'm thankful I didn't go that time. I ended up having two more fights in the early days of Mighty Oaks. Both they gave me some attention, some yeah. public you know, PR from Mighty Oaks. I fought in, uh, I fought in you know, uh, uh, Joseph Sandoval and Legacy. He, had, he was a UFC. He just came out of UFC. Yeah. Uh, him in 58 seconds. And then um, that was his first fight out of the UFC. And then uh, and then I fought uh, Andrew Yates at World Series of Fighting on NBC Sports. And Andrew Yates was kind of up and coming. I think he's like – I think Andrew Yates is like maybe 10 and 2 now or something like that. But, yeah. But he uh, – Still a good he record. Was, uh, he, 
yeah, he was eight eight and zero or seven and zero or eight and zero at the time, and upcoming you know, tough kid. And uh, I, he was twenty four and I was thirty eight, so that was my last fight, and it was a, it was a good. I had a good run. Yes, really really happy with how what how it went. But you know that that door being closed for UFC was probably uh, the right thing at the right time. Yeah, for me to do. You know, it's it, being a fighter is great. I'm proud of it. I love it. But uh, what I do at Mighty Oaks is way way more important. I can totally understand that and totally see that. I just think I just think UFC missed the boat. You know, uh, you look at Randy Couture's late run. You know, Brian Stan, he was in the W. And we, we're t- I'm talking about veterans that have been in the UFC. Uh, Brian Stan, he was in the WC and had a relatively short run in, in the UFC. Uh, but how and but you look at afterwards them them two plus Tim Kennedy. You look at the ambassadorship that they brought to the table between the military and and, and mixed martial arts. I think they missed the boat, Chad. I think they did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. I okay. So, really quick uh, about about the career. If there's one fighter in the flyweight division that you wish you could have gotten on with, who would it have been? Demetrius Johnson. He's the best in the world. I mean, uh, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna take my time to compete against someone, I want to compete against the best. I've always mm-hmm. wanted to compete against the best guys, and I think Demetrius Johnson is the best flyweight fighter in the world. Yeah. Uh, still, I think he is. Especially stylistically, I would love to compete against him. Yeah, he's an exciting fighter, and of course, being from Washington State, I'm a, I'm a little bit homer for for Demetrius. He's just a good human being too. Yeah, I like I like competing against good people. I'm a martial artist, and uh, I mean, man, you watched uh, Justin Gaethje and uh and Khabib yeah. this time. I mean, Khabib's on the ground crying, and uh, Gaethje just got choked out, lost, you know, lost lost his chance to be world champion, and he goes over to him and says, he leans over to put his arm around him while he's crying on the ground, and says, uh, "Hey, you know, sorry about your dad." And uh, he'll be proud of you right now. Man, how, how awesome is that? Yeah, and that's that's something that you don't see in a lot of other sports, the honor between fighters. You yeah. Know? I think it's that's that's one of the things that I think military members really can identify with when, when talking about MMA. You know, I, I've, I, I see a lot of guys go from a pro career, you know, good fighters that I know from back home, yet they never made that jump to, to you think, you know, I think after they make, after you make 10, 10 fights or so from the regionals to the national ones, um, what is it? How do you make that jump? Is it is it quality of opponents? Is it an agent? Social media? A combo? Sometimes it's just time, the right place, at the right time. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's just what it is. I mean, I mean, nowadays it's uh it's your following. You know, with the the world of social media and your ability to build your own social following. Yeah, uh, I think I think that's what it is more than anything. And how do you build your following? Where you build your following with? Uh, it's not always quality opponent. Sometimes it's beating quality opponent, but sometimes your following is based on your your style. Like, are you going to go out there and just win, or are you going to go out there and you know knock people's block off, or are you going to you know submit everyone? And I mean, for me, it was a uh, you know I, I, I mean I, I'm 18 and two as a professional. I have 17 submissions, so it was being a jujitsu guy. Like I always, I always joke like uh, I hate MMA. I, I, I say it in <laughs> I hate MMA. I'm just a jujitsu guy trying to submit MMA fighters. Looking back. MMA, jiu-jitsu, was it good for your PTSD or was it a band-aid? Uh, jiu-jitsu is a great thing for uh, jiu-jitsu and any, any physical outlet is a great thing for PTSD. Yeah. I mean, I look, uh, working with veterans like I do every day right now is extremely stressful. Yeah. And then when I have a bad day at the office, I go to the gym and I find like some 20-year-old stud and I go choke him out. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better. So it's still a good part of my life. And, uh, you know, my third-degree black belt, I'm about to get my fourth degree from Carlson Gracie Jr. I was still – I was with – you know, Carlson Gracie Jr. and I were together just yesterday and about to be a fourth degree black belt under him. And it's a big part of my life. I love it. Uh, I still have, you know, hard days sometimes. Yeah. And I, and, uh, and jujitsu is a big part of my, you know, my plan to keep myself on track. Very good. But I understand now that, that 
when you talk about those pillars in mind, body, spirit, social, you have to have all four of them. And, uh, and so I'm not just relying on, on, uh, jujitsu. I'm not just relying on medication. I'm not just relying on, uh, that my friends and people around me, um, uh, you know, more of a holistic, the spiritual pillar is an important part too. And all those things together are so important. And, and, and I'll, I'll self inventory my life at some time and say, Hey, where am I strong? Where am I weak? If I'm weak in this area, I need to be more intentional about strengthening it. It's like having a, a, a table with four legs. You know, you could, you could pull one of those legs out and the table might balance, but as soon as you put weight on it, it's going to fall over Yeah. on the surface. Everything looked good, but I never dealt with those things. So I was still having panic attacks. I was still having nightmares and sleepless nights. I was not, I was still a tyrant to my wife and kids and all the, you know, so I never actually got better. And, um, you had a very successful record 18, like you said, 18 and two against some top guys. You did all these things, but like you said, you, you talk about that time very differently than what many people would think. I think it's, it's the same with so many people like that time, uh, when I was winning those fights and when I won, you know, the legacy FC, I was the first one to win a legacy, legacy FC belt yeah. on HGNet and, and, uh, you know, when I fought strike force, like the highest point of my professional life was the lowest point of my personal life. I mean, mm. I, I finished that strike force fight. And, um, I, I fought on Showtime in front of 10,000 people in the Toyota center. I mean, I don't know how many people watch on television, but in front of 10,000 people there and and everyone would have thought, you know, wow, this has got to be exciting night for this guy. I drove home to my apartment and, uh, and that was the night that I made a decision. I was gonna take my life. Um, the, the, I was separated from my wife and children. We decided we were getting divorced. Uh, we sold our home. We were living in two separate apartments. And, um, you know, I essentially had to, you know, abandon my family cause I didn't want to deal with, um, the situation we're in anymore. You know, it's this three year downward spiral. I just hit a, you know, you know, I, I made a decision that night that, that my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. And, uh, you know, for everybody listening, I think this, you know, that thought my family would be sad without me. My, uh, my friends would be sad without me. My, my loved ones or, you know, the world would be sad without me, but they'd be better off. And unfortunately that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 20 plus veterans every single day. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I don't think a lot of veterans take their lives because they think they want to end their pain. They want to spare the people around them, the pain, and they think they're doing a, a service to the, to others. And, uh, that's what I believed in. I didn't, I wasn't going to like cry out for help or say anything. I didn't want anybody cause I didn't want anybody to intervene. I had, it was a, it was a pretty firm decision. I would, I would sit in my closet, uh, in a, uh, my apartment by myself and I put my family pictures on the floor around me, um, and just stare at those pictures and try to build up the courage. I had a Glock 22 pistol, a 40 caliber pistol. And I put that pistol to my head and try to build up the courage to, uh, to pull the trigger. And, um, you know, I, uh, I don't know if I had the courage to pull the trigger. Obviously I've seen what guns could do and I know what happens when that trigger breaks. Um, I say, I don't know if I had the courage cause I didn't do it. But every time I'd put that pistol to my head, I had a, I'd have this overwhelming thought that would come over me. I don't, and it would happen every time. The only person that had a key to my apartment at the time was my son, Hunter, you know, one who's a Marine now. Mm. And, um, and I remember thinking like, I can't let my son find me this way or, or be part of finding me this way. And so I pumped the brakes and, uh, but the next day I'd be back at it, doing it again. And one morning I was, I was in that closet and I had that pistol and, uh, my wife pretty much un- unwittingly saved my life. She knocked on my door and, um, when she knocked on the door of my apartment, I wasn't going to answer because I just heard a knock and I kind of was ignoring it. And then she like 
kind of panically announced herself. And when she did, I, I, I had that pistol and this is my closet, my apartment. She would have never went in there. Um, but for some reason, when I, when I heard her voice, I hid that, I hid my pistol under a blanket, uh, probably cause of like a shame. I don't know. Uh, well, I did like a little kid get caught, gets caught doing something and hides, hides it. But that's what I did. And I got to the door and we start talking and we got in this big argument. And in the middle of this argument, she asked me a question that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did. We were 17 and 18 when we met. She's just like, how could you do everything you did in the Marine Corps, become a recon Marine, like all these training in school. She's like, she's kind of naming stuff and she's like cutting like fights. I mean, she, you gotta think what she's seen in the fights, like the discipline it took to, I'd lose like 35 pounds making weight for these fights. Look like yeah. a Holocaust victim, like bones in my face, like, <laughs> like, like so much discipline to get ready for these fights. And dedication, like, commitment, yeah. just all that. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, how can you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know about the listeners on here, but there's no more soul cutting word to me than be called a quitter. And uh, she had been, she was absolutely right. I'd been, the things I had been successful at professionally, I'd been, a, uh, I had been successful at a lot of things professionally, but it came to the most important things being a husband, being a father, being a young 17 year old kid that raised his hand and said he wanted to do something important with his life. I quit on all those things, including my own will to live. And so at that moment, I made a pretty radical decision that I was going to turn things around. Uh, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I couldn't do it with the people I'd surrounded myself by. And uh, my wife, you know, was going to this church. And I said, hey, is there like some guy at this church that you could introduce me to? to I didn't care about anything with faith at the time. I just wanted somebody that could, you know, help hold me accountable. Uh, somebody outside of my peer circle that could help hold me accountable as a decision to pull things together. And so she introduced me to this guy named Steve Toth. And I remember we met at a Starbucks coffee shop and uh and uh, when we met, I had written, I'd written uh, like a five paragraph order, like operational order. I was going to fix my life. And it was really good. And I was really proud of it. And mm-hmm. I probably like smugly, like slid it over to him. And he, he, he uh, didn't even read it. He put his hand on it and slid it back over to me and told me it was going to fail. I remember being like really offended, you know, cause I was like, one, I was probably super proud of it. Cause I'm my arrogance. Spent some time uh, on it too. Five paragraph order is no joke, you know? Yeah. Yeah wanted him to show it to my wife because I'm trying to win her back now, you know, and yeah. be manip- being manipulative there. And, uh, and, but she, he, uh, slid it over to me. I'm, I never forget what he did. He tapped on, he, he put his finger on, he tapped on it. And he said, if this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, uh, I'm not going to waste your time. And I'm not going to let you waste mine. And if you can remember earlier when we were talking, you know, I talked about that spiritual pillar being a really weakness in yeah. my life. And I, I think deep down I knew that. And, uh, you know, I'm not coming to your show to preach or anything like that, but I can no. really share my, share my story without telling you that piece for me. I've had a lot of veterans lately talk pretty openly about their faith, uh, what, yeah. what, no matter what faith it is. Now, we do have a Center of Faith and Opportunity Initiative. Yeah. Uh, and they're here at the BA and their they're director's a Marine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Conrad Washington. Oh, you know Conrad. Yeah. yeah. He's in my office. Yeah. Yeah. Conrad's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We even broke down that uh, his office here in the, on the podcast. So it's, it's in our archives. If you take a look if anybody's interested. Um, yeah. but you know, the VA has chaplains, um, you know, it, it, the faith has been a running theme on the podcast lately. And I think it's cool that the VA has recognized, uh, and has taken a more positive approach in how they view faith and healing one's injuries. Well, I've, I've been a big advocate for that. And I can tell you some things in the back end that I've been, I've kind of been a, one of the moving forces with that, working with Conrad to do that. Yeah, because, I mean, because of this, you know, I'm, I'm in that situation. Steve's telling me I'm going to fail. I had tried everything. I tried the, I had been on pills, medication, like I had been through the counseling programs and all these programs to, and, and even had, you know, professional success in life. I tried everything and, and yeah. uh, everything I tried didn't work. It was time for me to try something different. So I trusted this guy, Steve. I, 
I made it like a faith uh, decision that surrendered my life to Christ as a Christian. And, um, and beyond that decision, uh, Steve mentored me for an entire year in biblical manhood. And, and, uh, and what that means is like just really teaching me how to make life choices in response to to the, the hardships of life and the things that had happened to me. And, and what I, what I, the, the kind of conclusion I came to, and it may seem like simple to a lot of people, but to me, it was a big kind of epiphany is that I came to this realization that all these bad things that had happened to me, you know, you heard some of them, some bad things happened in my life. Like despite all those things that happened to me, those things did not lead me to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand. Yeah. What led me there were the choices that I made in response to those things. And so I had the ability to make a different choice moving forward. And, and, uh, as cliche as it may sound, I realized I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future. And, and I did. Yeah. And in a decision to do that and being intentional about calibrating my life to the, the life that I believe I was created to live, things began to radically change for me. I found restoration in my marriage and my family and my own brokenness. I found hope for the first time in a long time. And I ultimately found with a, you know, I think we seek our whole life and probably why most of us join the military and that's purpose. We were created to have purpose. If, if you want to why military veterans take the life at 20 rate of 20 something a day, it's not because uh, of what they seen or did. It's because they had purpose. They had a mission. They had a reason to wake up every day. And then one day they woke up and they felt like that was gone. Their purpose was gone without yeah. purpose. We kind of wither up and, and die. And one of my favorite quotes is Mark Twain. He says the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. People talk about purpose, and, and a lot of MMA fighters think that the purpose is, is is fighting. But you know, just like the Marine Corps, eventually that's a, a sport. A, you know, an athlete's career is going to come to an end. So your last fight was in 2013, and you and you came into your own personal journey between you and your faith. And it seems like it's ter- helped you turn to the next chapter in life. I mean, you're busy, man. I, I I see you on social media. I'm just happy I was able to lock you down so we can make this birthday episode. Um, you're writing books, two of which came out in 2017. You're touring, speaking. You have your own podcast. Uh, you run a nonprofit, like you mentioned, the Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs. Um, real quick, what mission are you on with all of these things? Uh, I mean, my mission is, uh, I mean, my mission is a recon marine and uh, was to serve other people. And my mission today at Mighty Oaks Foundation is to still serve other people. I mean, um, it's a different mission, a different way to serve. But uh, the battle is, uh, I don't think that there's been a greater battle that I've been a part of. I mean, the the care for our veterans and our military wars that served our country, uh, the fact that they're you know killing themselves after twenty years of uh, in the war on terror, and uh, you know still some from the Vietnam era that are not finding the same hope and restoration I found. Uh, I, I I feel obligated that my service is to share that and pay it forward. And that's what I've committed my life to. Gotcha. It's called Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs, uh, programs with a plural. Yes. What are some of the programs? Uh, and is this what you talk about on your podcast? Yeah, well, we have two podcasts. One's Mighty Oaks, the Mighty Oaks show. The other's a, the Situation Report. But uh, you know, the the foundation is was set up to uh, to do two things. One is the, one is the resiliency effort to where I go speak to active duty troops around the world, and I've spoken to one hundred fifty thousand bases around the world, giving away about one hundred thousand books. And we speak on the topics, you know, pillars of resiliency, the spiritual resiliency, PTSD, suicide awareness, and. And we've been very blessed to, you know, speak at Marine Corps boot camp every quarter and very blessed to have the opportunity to speak to these active duty troops. And then we have recovery programs. We have four ranches around the country, California, Ohio, Virginia, and Texas. And we fly, we pay for everything, the program, the flights, everything. We pay for active duty troops. 
uh, veterans and spouses, and we even take care of first and first responders. Bringing these programs, they're a six-day intensive that is peer-to-peer uh, mentorship program, and they're all faith-based. I mean, we have all kinds of folks. We have atheists and everybody come, but it is a Christian program. Yeah. But um, we have a, we've had 4,000 graduates from this program. It's extremely successful. Um, in fact, the VA is, the VA is, uh, is we're working on an MOU with the VA right now. And, uh, the VA is actually working with us to do a evidence-based study. I saw that. I saw that and I actually read the press release last, uh, on a previous episode. Yeah. So we've become evidence-based treatment. Um, and so we, we, uh, we've had a lot of success, uh, I mean, for the military, all four branches of the military, send people on active duty to it. It's, it says a lot by itself. And again, we pay for everything. We're just working with the VA to try to make it available to people through the VA. But one of the, the third things that I do a lot is advocacy stuff. And for the last you know years, I've been working with the current presidential administration. I've testified before Congress and I've been working directly with uh, Pam Powers, who's the deputy secretary yeah. of the VA, Conrad. And, um, and I've worked on a lot of legislation and uh, worked with the president to sign an executive order to bring the Opportunity and Faith Initiative back into the VA. And uh, so we have the Opportunity and Faith Initiative back with the president's prevents which is the president's roadmap to empower veterans and international tragedy of veteran suicide Yeah, uh, includes faith-based programs. And so working with the implementation of that um, through uh, the faith-based veteran service Alliance, which is a white house initiative that I'm the chairman of. Oh, wow. Just get, get faith programs back on the table. I mean, it doesn't mean it needs to replace anything. I believe that there is a very real need for mental health programs. Um, You know, the, the VA does a good job of healing the mind and body, but you know, truth is, PTSD, for the most part, is a, is a blunt trauma to the soul, and a spiritual wound requires a spiritual solution. And so, uh, they might not be for everyone, but it has to be an option. It, on it's a tool. And it's a tool in the toolkit. You know, veterans deserve the choice to be able to choose to do that if they want it. Yeah, and and we've seen a lot of things change within the VA recently. Last year, we, they repermitted religious literature, symbols, and displays, uh, VA facilities to, to to protect that religious uh, liberty for veterans. And and back in January, there was a proposed rule to remove regulatory barriers allowing religious and non-religious organizations equal treatment uh, in VA social service programs, you know, funding and whatnot. Secretary Wilkie has done a great job. I think it was open for open comments back in February. And I think we're waiting to see if there's going to be a solid change coming on that soon, but I think that's, that's still in process. So there's some things with, with faith-based, uh, to add that tool back to the, you know, it back into the VA's toolkit. Um, I didn't know you were that involved in the VA with that. You know, I, I, that was not part of my research before this interview. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, um, you know, because of the success that we've had at Mighty Oaks, it becomes a great illustration of, hey, this works. It works. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it helps a lot of people. I mean, we have so many people that have been to so many different programs, clinical programs that, I mean, even like six-month inpatient programs, nothing changed in their life. And they come spend six days with us and their, their lives are radically changed. Is there a focus on the family in that? Uh, you know, you talked about, you know, you and your wife have gone through a, a journey. Yeah. Um, is there a focus on that with for the for the military veterans and military communities and first responders uh, as far as that aspect of the healing? Yeah, we uh, we have a spouses program and we we could kind of treat our spouses about the same with the same care and service that we do our veterans. Mm. Uh, and then when they when one of the either the, the veteran or active duty or, or the spouse goes through a program. Then uh, we, we even uh, cover training. We have a partnership with a uh, with Family Life to to cover uh, marriage training. So we we do that as well. Very good. Uh, we haven't done a family camp yet. We we want to, um, but man, we are we are so um, so busy. Like uh, I mean, we, even though we did four thousand veterans uh, through our uh, through our core program, our legacy program at our ranches, 
we've done 4,000 in 10 years. Um, we were in track this year to do 1,000 per year. Wow. So super committed to that. And that's our primary focus. Secondary would be the resiliency training and, and advocacy work. Very good. So you're also a writer writing. Um, you know, we've had a lot of writers in, in, our, in our archives here at Born the Battle. Heck, even Dale Dye, our birthday guest from last year, you know, he's known as an actor, but he's written numerous books, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. What do you write and why do you write it? So I've written, I've written uh, a couple of the, the giveaway books that I do is um, The Truth About PTSD, which mm. is uh, kind of what PTSD is, what it's not. A lot of people are diagnosed with it, but never told what it is and understand what actually goes on in the body. I don't write from so much a Christian perspective, but from a creation perspective um, that, you know, the human body functions through PTSD by design. So that book's, uh, you know, one of the ones we give away a lot of. Um, mm. And then, uh, then Path to Resiliency is uh, kind of that, that spiritual resiliency pillar. So you got um, you almost got like, you almost got like a science science you know on the science of PTSD and then also almost on the on the spiritual part of the PTSD. On the spiritual yeah, spirit, the path to resiliency is one that we that's one that we give away to every recruit and Marine Corps recruit training. Very good uh, on the west at least in the West Coast right now. Um, so path to resiliency and then we have a third part of that series coming out called uh, Suicide Not the Solution. Those three books are mainly our giveaways. And then I've written several others, but the, the main one is uh, an unfair advantage. And unfair advantage is kind of like my story. Uh, so I tell stories from Afghanistan and MMA and kind of life stories in every chapter that I have a story. I have a parallel story of a biblical, um, some kind of biblical history that really inspired and encouraged me. And so like it brings a life lesson to it. And an unfair advantage is like the advantage we find uh, in a life of faith. You know, very strong faith-based, very raw uh, real stories in my life in Afghanistan and in the man life and just, uh, and how I, you know, how I, I say, it, I mean, I don't have my life figured out yet, so I'm still on the journey, uh, <laughs> Very navigating good. it, but how some of the, some of the lessons that I've, uh, some of the lessons that I've learned and uh, the cool thing about an unfair advantage and you, there was an old version, uh, when it first came out and then we just got it published, uh, and it's just released on October 6th, hit number one, number one bestseller on Amazon, by the way. Oh, that's outstanding. Congratulations. You know, and I ask every writer this, uh, any, any veteran that that's looking to get into the writing game, Yeah. what's one piece of advice that you'd tell them? Uh, you just have to start. I mean, uh, <laughs> and that sounds, that sounds so simple, but uh, I know so many people that are, that I've, I've known for like you know, years, like 10 years, like, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. Start writing a book. You know, where do you start? You just, you start you know, right where you are, just start writing. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, publishing, if you're going to try to publish a book, you can write the most brilliant content in the world and not get it published. Yeah. So if you want to publish a book, you got to build the platform, uh, or else the publisher won't look at you right now. Cause everyone write, writes books. Is, is self-publishing you think it could be a way to also build a platform? It is. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, so an unfair advantage, just got a publishing deal. Uh, and with Broad Street Publishing, I just got a second deal with Thomas Nelson and HarperCollins, which is the biggest, one of the biggest publishers in the world. Yeah. Um, but before I got those deals with those publishers, you know, I sold, you know, probably a hundred thousand books at my speaking tables. Wow. Um, you know, in unfair advantage, um, I sold 25,000 copies, um, at my speaking tables, just at tables. And, uh, and so I was able to show the publisher, Hey, look, just in my own audience, I've sold 25,000 copies of these. And they were like, Oh wow, that's really got their attention. Yeah. And a, a lot of my platform was probably built off of, you know, that's a books and, and, uh, and selling books at speaking events. That's a great way to cross platform. Good tip. Yeah. Um, Chad, what's one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today? 
I think one of the most uh, important lessons learned in life, and, and my life has been kind of a life of service, uh, is just it's not about you. Um, it's about others. And, uh, you know, for the first part of my life, um, I'd say the first 35 years of my life, I would have said I was serving others. But really, most decisions were uh, self-focused. Most of the decisions I made, even, you know, even though there would have been a, a side of me, you know, wanting to serve my country and serving, you know, deploying. But there was always something in it for me. And, um, and there was always an angle in it for me. And, uh, and that's very unfulfilling. You just never feel a contentment and satisfaction when you're pursuing and never, nothing's ever good enough. It's like on to the next goal. I accomplished that. Okay, now I'm not fulfilled. So what's the next goal? Like he's chasing fulfillment. And, uh, and as soon as I changed my turn my life and that perspective of it's not about me, it's about others. I stopped looking at the world in terms of myself and started looking at the world in my life as it related to other people and how I could put other people before myself. Yeah. Um, ironically, that's when I found uh, contentment and joy and uh, satisfaction in my life. Very good. Very good. Chad, I, I know you run Mighty Oaks. Uh, as, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty successful nonprofit, but is there another a veteran nonprofit or an individual who, or an individual whom you've worked with in the veteran community or had experience with whom you'd like to mention? Yeah. I mean, um, I think if I could point to anybody, instead of pointing to one specific organization, it'd be the FBVSA, the faith-based veteran service Alliance. Um, you know, it's it started off as a white house initiative. They asked me to, they asked me the same question. Is there other organizations that are doing what you're doing that could come together and, and bring a multitude of services? Uh, to a veteran community and uh and so that began the veteran service alliance the fbvsa.org and in that organization there's just tons of incredible people damon freeman kevin weaver uh, evan owens that all run their own organizations uh and uh you know serving veterans and 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 with the same heart that mighty oaks has and we all just have come together into one umbrella and uh and and a, and a you know kind of a non like non-territorial like yeah, you know, we're not we're not trying to stake our claim on, on veterans care. We realize that the problem is big enough that we all need to work together. Yeah, so it's a non-territorial entity to uh, to bring everyone to come together with one common mission, and that's to serve our serve our brothers and sisters. Outstanding, that's outstanding. Um, is there anything else that I've missed, or I didn't bring up, or didn't mention that you think it's important important to share? So, if I had one final message for any any uh, body listening right now, I'd is that there is hope and uh, no matter how hopeless you may feel or no matter how dark a moment you may be in uh one first is don't ever make a, a permanent decision a temporary problem like there you may feel like this moment's never going to end you may feel like it's never going to get better but the truth is it will and there is a hope and there is a purpose for your life if you weather this storm get past it align yourself with the right people and tie into the very purpose i believe you were created to live Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I want to thank Chad for coming on Born the Battle and sharing his intense story on really short notice. 
For more information on Chad, you can go to mightyoaksprograms.org forward slash about. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is a Marine that Chad had mentioned to me in his interview. His friend, Marine Corps veteran Foster Harrington. And the following is, by the way, of the Mobile Register. Marine Corps veteran Foster Harrington, who grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, by way of New York, had moved to Mobile, gotten engaged to his fiancée, Fran Poston, and joined the Seven Hills Volunteer Fire Department as a medic and firefighter for about 18 months in West Mobile County before going on active duty and deploying with 3rd Force Recon in June of 2004. They were deployed to Al-Ambar province of Iraq, where sadly Harrington was killed a couple of months later due to enemy insurgent action on September 20th of 2004. With his parents deceased, he is survived by a brother, his grandfather, and his brothers-in-arms. He is buried in the Dallas-Fort Worth National Cemetery and Marine Corps League Detachment 1449 in Mobile, Alabama, was named in his honor. Marine Corps veteran Foster L. Harrington. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, no phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any immediate products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening. Have a happy and safe Marine Corps birthday and Veterans Day. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. One thing that we do at the end of every ep- or end of some episodes, if it, I kind of give a, a as almost a thank you to uh, to thanks for sticking with me, uh, we do what's called saved rounds, uh, and, and that's a new name now. It used to be called after the show show because for over a year I didn't know what I was going to call this thing. I like saved rounds. Is there any random or good? Or is there any story that that is un- almost unrelated? It could be in the military, it could be in, from your fight career that is maybe funny. Funny to me is. 
funded everybody else is always different. Sure. <laughs> but I think, I think veterans will share in your, in your humor here. So if you read my book, uh, you know, for advantage to share this story, it's, it's called, it's called, uh, I titled it captain of the Titanic, ti- captain of the Titanic. And the reason I, I, uh, think it's uh, one of the second reasons I think it's funny is my, my daughter wanted a, uh, story one time. She's like, after this veterans day, I have to write a story from a veteran. And so I shared this story with her and, None of, nobody, none of her teachers thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm now, now you got to hear. So uh, yeah, I think I mentioned him on, on the on the episode. Uh, Dan Dan Stenson, who's uh, one of my mentors, we were, we had to uh, we had some team members that were going to go um, they were going to go either kill or capture a high level bad guy, and um, and they were going into certain areas, so they needed a they needed a like a a vehicle that blended in the area with all the you know, permits and pat, you know, everything you need to be able to get in that area. So sure. that was, that was my, you know, what I did. I, I, I went, went and got a vehicle for them, set it up, got all the permits and everything. I got one of those little Haji vans, you know, those little kind of flat front end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of decked it out, made it look like a bone to local, got all the permits to get in this area. They were going to go, you know, go after this bad guy. in. and, uh, they were there, you know, they're doing their rehearsals. And, and so, we're like going to go drop the vehicle off to them. And so we're going through the area to go to where their fob was and, uh, drop this vehicle off to them so they could do their hit. And uh, as we're driving there, it's like I had a Hilux, some kind of jacked up Hilux pickup truck, uh, with some good suspension. And, uh, my buddy Bink, you know, is the forestry kind of guy. He had, he had a, he had a Hilux pickup truck. And then, uh, and then we put big, big Dan, big Dano, uh, in, in this van, and, uh, you know, he's like squeezed in this thing. He's like all, all over a steering wheel. Cause he's just a giant man in this van. I don't know why we, he was the one to put in the van. So we're, <laughs> so he's in the, he's in the middle of us and the, and the three vehicles were like cruising down this road. And, uh, as we're cruising down this road, it's like a long desert road. And it was kind of known as it's not really desert, but kind of like, you know, if you've been in Afghanistan, dry you know, like that. Yeah. Dry. Yeah. Rocky. So, yeah, exactly. So, and this road's like really narrow, barely big, wide enough for two cars to go, but but the sides of the road, this area was full of like minefields that's so never been cleared for the Russians dropping air, air dropping mines in there. So you don't oh, go off the road there. Wow. And, uh, and then in addition, uh, you know, the, I don't know, I don't know Taliban are just like, you know, Afghan thugs would go out and dig like a trench through the road, like break the, break the asphalt and dig a trench through the road and make like a, make like a, a speed bump and then put a little put a uniform on and put a little hooch out there and, and, um, either, shake you down for money like it was a checkpoint or or you know rob you and kill you know shoot you and kill you so yeah. we don't you just don't stop for those you just blast over them so so uh we're like cruising you know pretty fast probably going like like 60 kilometers an hour and, and, and anyways we're so we're driving right now and i and i noticed in my rear view mirror because i got the lead i got the lead and notice in my rear view mirror this this black mercedes benz that was like pristine clean <laughs> driving like coming up behind us like super fast and starting to pass us. And now if you were in Iraq or something like that, you might see like a Mercedes Benz, like clean, yeah. but Afghanistan, no, like everything's old, dirty. You don't see like nice cars there. It was very, very out of place. And, uh, and so this car's passing us and I'm looking at it like, and you know, like what the heck? And I watch it start to pass us. And as it, as it starts to pass, to pass us, uh, I see it like swerve around something in front of me. And it goes goes off, and 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 then I realized what it swerved around was this giant boulder in the middle of the road. Oh, wow. like 
like the size of a couch, like just giant, oh, wow. giant boulder in the middle of the road. Maybe that, maybe I'm exaggerating the size of a couch, but sure. But uh, and there was no way for me to break. Love seat. And uh, <laughs> like there was no way. Dan's like right behind me. There's no way for me to break. So I just kind of braced myself in the steering wheel, center of my vehicle, and I cleared it. I don't know how I cleared it, but I just barely. This thing was so big, I just barely cleared it. And as I cleared it, I was like, gonna have like this relief, and I, and I realized Dan was behind me in this little van. Oh, and no. uh, and I look in my rearview mirror, and he just crashes into this thing, boom! And this his van like went airborne. It was like, and it didn't only go airborne, like probably probably like a you know chest height. Yeah. It it, it didn't only go airborne, but it turned sideways in the air. And I'm like watching it in my rearview mirror, and I'm like, he's gonna roll or go off the side of the road in a minefield. And uh, and this thing lands on all four wheels. It bounces and bounces back and forth. It's like going from one side of the road to the other. And I'm like waiting for him to roll it. And he finally like it, somehow it never rolled and uh, comes back and he just skids to a halt. And, uh, and we all jump out, jump out the vehicle. Cause we are like, it's like an ambush or what? So we jump out. Well, I say we jump out. Me and bank did. Dan was still staying in the vehicle. We jump out with our, you know, we had him fours and yeah. Make sure everything was cool. And then once we realized everything was cool, we look at the vehicle and then it's like smoke. You smell like rubber burning. Smoke's coming from the vehicle. And Dan's in there like pale white. He steering wheel, he like sheared the steering wheel in half. <laughs> like racing. <laughs> oh my God. You know, he has a brake point in the steering wheel. Yeah. Broke. And then the, the whole dashboard caved in from the impact. And and he's like in there just like his nose is bleeding. <laughs> he's like pale. And we're like me and Bank just in the middle of this road and in the middle of Afghanistan, we just, I, I fell on the ground laughing so I couldn't breathe. I'm like laughing so hard. <laughs> and, uh, and, and literally, the uh, underneath the vehicle, it looked like somebody took a hook and just ripped it. It just like totally – the vehicle was dead. We had to – we just left on the side of the road. I'm just thinking and, uh, about it, your daughter relaying this story in a in a Yeah, she's, I thought it was a great story. <laughs> she tried to tell her uh, her, her uh, fourth grade class about it. I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we, we had to leave the vehicle there. I mean, it was, it, we uh, – and and had to go to our, our the squadron and like hey guys uh sorry we don't have your vehicle and uh it's dead the captain at titanic here found the iceberg in the middle of afghanistan <laughs> wow and uh, killed it wow. so uh, some some bad guy some bad guy uh you know got off the hook that night <laughs>